You're tuned into A Kind of Harmony. In this podcast, we're looking to transcend the physical limitations of daily life. In each episode, we speak with a different practitioner who uses sound as a tool or method for connection, transcendence, and healing. We're your hosts, Julia Edick and Amanda Harvey. In this episode, we spoke with legendary Canadian-American singer, composer, and transgender activist, Beverly Glenn Copeland. Glenn's work has been gathering momentum and recognition in recent years, thanks to a reissue of the extraordinary folk jazz of his debut self-titled album, and the widespread discovery of his masterpiece, Keyboard Fantasies. Born in Philadelphia in 1944, Glenn grew up in a house obsessed with classical music. His father practiced piano for five hours a night. Glenn refers to Bach, Chopin, and Mozart as his cradle music that seeped into his bloodstream. He moved to Montreal in 1961 to study at McGill University Faced with challenges and hostility relating to his race, gender, and sexual orientation, he dropped out of university before completing his degree. Instead, he picked up a guitar and started writing music. In 1970, Glenn recorded two brilliant albums. The first was part of CBC Radio's transcription series titled Beverly Copeland, It was a virtuosic showcase of classical and jazz vocal stylings, poetry, and folk, accompanied by some of the best players of the time. Original pressings of that album now fetch thousands of dollars when passed from collector to collector. Just 250 copies were pressed. Six months later, Glenn made a studio album with many of those same musicians, this time titled Beverly Glenn Copeland. It wasn't until 1986 that Glenn recorded again. This time, he was inspired by a profound relationship with nature, an obsession with science fiction, and some of the earliest drum machines and synthesizers. Keyboard Fantasies is a minimalist, proto-electronic masterpiece with unbelievable soul. It sold less than 100 copies at the time. But Keyboard Fantasies was this record that would break Glenn's career wide open more than 30 years later. Glenn's life has been a non-stop combination of self-discovery and part pop culture fairy tale. He appeared as a regular guest, Beverly, on the beloved Canadian children's show, Mr. Dress Up, for nearly 30 years. He wrote for Sesame Street. He lived in the cities and in the wild. He wrote musicals, operas, children's music, and hundreds upon hundreds of other songs, even though he only had the means to record those few aforementioned albums. In the early 1990s, 
Beverly Glenn Copeland first heard the term transgender. Armed with the language to describe the way he had felt since before he was even a teenager, he found a self-identity which had eluded him his whole life. In 2016, Keyboard Fantasies was discovered by a revered Japanese record store owner and collector. Word spread in the record collecting community and several reissues were released on different labels. Glenn played his first shows of original music in more than 40 years to standing ovation after standing ovation. He formed a band of brilliant and talented young musicians from Nova Scotia, Montreal, and Toronto and started touring the world. We were curious to speak with Glenn about his legacy and are deeply honored that he took the time to share his knowledge, insight, and wisdom with us. Thank you for everything, Glenn. My name is uh, Beverly Glenn Copeland. <laughs> easy to have an easy name, but I don't have one. So, yeah, so that's my name and um, my practice. I studied music at university. My father was a brilliant pianist and he was my first influence. So, because he played, um, I don't know, four or five hours a day after he came home from being a first a teacher and then a principal in a high school. So, he studied, but he didn't start till he was 23 studying piano. And by the time he was like, I don't know, 20, 26 or something, he was playing Chopin, Beethoven, and Brahms, like quite extraordinary. Yeah. And my mother could play anything, right? She'd just play anything. She, she was brilliant too. So I inherited their genes. And um, obviously there wasn't anything for me to be other than a musician. <laughs> so there you go. That's it. Great. That's uh, pretty amazing that your father was like your first influence. I love that. He was, yeah, yeah. From the time I was approximately seven years old, that's what I heard. I heard classical music being played on a beautiful piano. You've been a musician for many years now. <laughs> Could you tell us about kind of the process of making or composing music and how it's changed for you over the years? Well, okay, there's two levels to things. There's the process of attempting to make music that I would let other people hear. And then there's what happens when something comes through, which we'll discuss later which people definitely should hear, okay? So the process of me attempting to make music that other people should hear consists of me sitting down at piano and uh, just playing around, really. And then something will occur to me, um, both um, vocally and in terms of whatever's going on, you know, with the keyboard. It used to be that I played guitars and the same thing would be true. I didn't really know how to play a guitar, so I just retuned the whole thing. And I didn't know anybody else did that, but you do what you do. And um, I would retune it and, and I'd hear things that I really liked. And then I would um, just start singing away. And if I really liked it, well, then I might keep it. And if it was junk, then it's okay. It was the process. It's how you, how you learn. describe to us the universal broadcasting system or the UBS? 
Yeah. I think that most wonderful things, no matter what our discipline is, you know, whether it's uh, science or whether it's dancing or, or whether it's anything, I think there's something that's coming through that actually comes from what I call the universal broadcasting system or the UBS. And that something is originated from something that is beyond us. And it comes through to us. And if we're not ready for it, it goes through to someone else, right? Yeah, so that's what I call the universal broadcasting system. And when something really comes through that I recognize because I'm not the one that thought it up in the first place. And I know that because it's beyond my capacities. That's how I feel. It's beyond my capacities. Then in that case, I attempt to translate it as best I can, right? And almost every single thing that I put, in fact, period, every single thing that I have put on a, on a, a record has been a result of that. Something coming through, just coming through. And I've recorded it one way or another. Yeah. Wow. All right. Speaking of your releases, let's talk a little bit about keyboard fantasies. Well, keyboard fantasies came through on the Universal Broadcasting System back in the 80s. So this music came through and uh, I ended up going, okay, this has come through. So I managed somehow to figure out how to have it be recorded. I won't get into that right now, but I managed to do that. And it was put out on an album, which is what I just said. And it sold, I don't know, maybe 30 copies and mostly to women who had children. And <laughs> they got back in touch with me and let me know that it was perfect for their children to go to sleep by. So it lullabied their children. And I was just thrilled about that. I just was thrilled because like, yeah, our little ones, right? And um, that's kind of how that happened. And I was um, very happy about that. Yeah. Amazing, because then fast forward almost 30 years in the future, this album has obviously gained quite a bit of acclaim. And so can you discuss the kind of clairvoyance of making this music for the future, making this music for the future generation, maybe these people, these babies who were listening to the album the first time around are now have the, the record in their record collection? Well, that's kind of a bit of a miracle, really, from my perspective. Of course, it's not from the perspective of the universe, but I heard at that time something that came through also on the UBS, which was that there were children who were going to be born who represented a huge step in human growth. And so now, I hope I don't insult anybody when I say this, but I'm talking about myself included here. We have been sort of teenagers for quite some while in the way in which we have dealt with the earth which is that it's all about me, you know, it's all about business, it's all about whatever, whatever the all about me is. And the result has not been good, obviously. And that's a kind of a teenage attitude. But it said that there would be a group of people who were born 
who would represent being grown-ups as humans, which is that they would be responsible and caring about what happened to the earth, right? So I was like busy looking for them, like, well, where are they? Where are they? Where are they? Where are they? Like, you know, I didn't see them. I was quite disturbed because I had been through the universal broadcasting system. I had been told that they were coming, right? And I realized later that they were just being born at that time. And that now y'alls, and I'm going to include everybody that's listening to this. I don't think you're interested in my music particularly unless you are adults. Now, I wasn't, <laughs> sorry to say, in many ways. I'm still growing up. But I think most of the young people who have been so attracted to my music are adults in that way, in which they're caring about important things, caring about the animals, caring about the earth itself, caring about what kind of things that we've done to it and how we can help the earth to reverse itself because the earth itself is trying to reverse this, which is a whole other thing I won't get into right now, but we have proof of this. And um, so there's this whole huge tribe of adults all over the world who are doing everything they can to try to maintain positive attitudes and to help the earth repair herself. That's what I call an adult. I'm trying very hard to grow up into this. And how does it feel for you to have kind of finally found your audience, your tribe, yeah. your adults? It is nothing short of astonishing because for such a very, very long time, you know, a few record collectors were interested in my music, right? And they would pay like $3,000 for an album. I didn't get any of the money of it, but that's where they were at, right? And I don't know what it was that they knew was going on. Maybe they were older people who were also already adults, right? I don't know, but whatever it is. So it wasn't until a very short while ago, relatively speaking, probably six years ago, if that approximately five to six years ago, and it might have been even shorter period of time, that a whole slew around the world of folks have found this music and are enjoying it. And I'm like a bit stunned because my wife, well, I'll talk about her later, but I'll mention her in this context. I said to my wife, I said, I have a feeling that after I'm, I've left the earth, the music will be discovered, right? And she said, mm -mm, that's not happening. I'm starting a prayer right now. It's going to be before you die, period. She's a powerful manifester, powerful manifester. So, yeah, you know, I'm sure she was a huge part of that anyway. Yeah. And in those nearly 30 years in between, when you mentioned that you said that you didn't think that people were going to listen until after you'd passed on, how did that feel? Were you ever discouraged or were you focused on other things? I was never discouraged. I knew that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing, right? Because I didn't have any other talents. <laughs> so, right, obviously, right? I wasn't meant to be a scientist, and, you know, uh, you know, or therapist or who knows what other kinds of wonderful, wonderful things that people do that are incredibly helpful for folks. 
I wasn't meant for that. And I didn't even really think about it in terms of it was going to help anybody. I just thought, well, this is what I do. You know, this is what I train to do. So this is what I'll do. This is what I have to do. Right. That obviously like comes through in your music. You can feel it on every level. Obviously, like as a pioneer of electronic music, you are using technology to create. But of course, many of your songs reference the natural world and have this kind of like transcendental or transformative quality to them. So we're wondering, what do you think of the kind of relationship between technology, nature and spirituality? Well, technology is something that we started using quite a few hundred years ago, one way or another. And um, it was very basic technology, but it was things that we were creating. Like we, we were creating things made out of iron, right? It's not like you found it in the earth and, and it was ready for you. We started creating pokers and this and that and wheels. And I mean, even though, you know, we used wood and stuff as well, but... We started dealing with the earth in ways where you needed to have fire and something else to create it, right? So we've been doing that for a long time. So I just see it as a natural thing that evolved considering that humans are tool makers. And tool making coupled with the ability to tame wolves (laughs) and the fact that we were able to keep fire from going out or else figure out how to make it again, which is tool making basically, you know, from quite some while ago. That's what we humans are, right? It's a function of our wonderful abilities. So at a certain point, we started making computers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the computers, there were rooms and rooms of them, but, you know, back in 1961 or whenever it was that they sent the first person out into space, that was technology, right? And that technology is really quite wonderful in many ways because it allows us to explore the universe. And we are continuing to explore it using superior technology. And now we know, oh, we're not the center of the universe. We're not even the center of anything. We're we're 42 billion years of light years out of some rim somewhere of some galaxy that is one of a gazillion million galaxies, innumerable amounts of galaxies. So, yes, we've been humbled by our technology, which is a very good thing, you know? It's a very good thing. However, on the smaller sense of it, in terms of my own work, I was always fascinated by technology. And the reason is because scientists, really phenomenal scientists, whom I always loved to read about and read what they were saying as soon as they were able to turn it into things that weren't numbers and weird equations that I could not use. In other words, like language for a person that just speaks whatever language we speak, right? As soon as that happened, I was like, whoa, look at what we're learning. Look at what's going on. Look at all this stuff, all because of computers. And I thought, I want one. (laughs) But they didn't have the little computers until about somewhere in the uh, late 80s. 
they came up with a tiny little computer that came from England. It's only about this big, right? And it was possible to do amazing things on this tiny little computer coming out of England. But I wasn't a computer specialist, so I couldn't, you know, put in all the numbers and make it do anything. But I walked around with it going, I know, it's wonderful. One and one or two. It was so funny. It was astonishing. But that is because, and this is all connected, the universe, as far as we know now, now we know more now than we did then. But as far as we know, life in our universe consists of one of two things, carbon or silicon. And silicon <laughs> is what computers are made out of. <laughs> and the computers that are now happening are incredibly sensitive and incredibly capable of all kinds of things. And it was said, and this is kind of wild, that eventually computers would be like, I used to read science fiction because I was so into science. And I only read science fiction by the scientists who themselves were given every award known to humans, right? But they were speculating that silicon life was going to become life and would turn out to look human, <laughs> but would have a basis of incredible kindness. Now it could be that it wouldn't. Don't know that yet. But, you know, I mean, there are those who believe they'll eradicate humans and buy to us and whatever. Well, maybe they know how to do things better than we knew, but I can't talk about that. I believe that if that were to happen, we would have beings that were incredibly sensitive, incredibly kind. That's what I think. But, hey, hopefully not the other. However, so I started, as the computers got more and more complicated back in the late 80s, I managed to get a hold of one that would actually allow me to make music. And so I started making music with the help of two computers, one that would make drum sounds and one that made sounds that sounded kind of like by, by today's standards, not too much like, but kind of like a violin or a cello or, you know, that kind of thing, right? Like uh, instruments. And I was tickled pink about it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of how I started my early years of making music, relatively speaking. Not the earliest, earliest, because I was doing other things way before that, but from the, I would say, the late 80s, I started using silicon-based equipment. discuss a bit the solitary nature of your process that is working with these silicon machines playing the keyboard the piano you know i compose all kinds of things and unless it's really a transmission from you know the universal broadcasting system it doesn't make it <laughs> but yeah that's what i do i compose in a solitary way at this point there will probably be some changes in the future Is there any way you can 
provoke a transmission? No, I can always tell when I try to provoke it. Like something will come to me. I could be washing dishes, right? Literally. Many, many times I'm doing something that has nothing to do with anything. And all of a sudden I go, and I run to the computer, I run to my piano, and I put it down, right? When I sit down and try to do things, nada, nothing happens. Not a thing. Okay, the other hand of solitude, we have some long-term relationships that have supported and inspired your practice. Can you discuss these a little bit, uh, notably the special relationship you have with your wife, Elizabeth, and your collaborator, engineer, John? Yeah, I can. I'm going to start with my wife. So, I have one talent. <laughs> it is music, right? My wife has five talents. She is a beautiful singer, so she has music as well. <laughs> She's an incredible writer, and I mean an incredible writer. Published, not self-published. So she's an incredible writer. She's a poet, once again, not self-published, published by others. She was, as a child and a teenager, a dancer, and she did that professionally. <laughs> <laughs> and she is an absolute champion for the earth and has been since she was a child. So there you go. This is my good fortune to be with someone that keeps me humble. We all need that. She's that for me, as well as the fact that I can celebrate her. And her name is Elizabeth Glenn Copeland, like mine. So there you go. I, I feel honored that she would take me on, that she would marry me, and uh, just fabulous. And as a result of my marriage to her, I also now have a daughter because she had a daughter in a previous marriage, and I have a grandchild, all of which comes from the daughter. And the daughter has decided that I am her father. So <laughs> she calls me father. So I feel blessed in this relationship. So there you go. John is a brilliant, classically trained musician. And he is an orchestrator. He orchestrates things for Hollywood. And we are, I'm talking about, he is a major musician. Anyway, a bunch of years ago, John came to a live concert that I was doing with Elizabeth and another dear friend. And he listened to the music. And then afterwards, he got in touch with me. And he said, listen, I would really like to help you with your music however I can. And what, what evolved was that, that was in about 2003, I think, that he heard, or 2004, what eventually evolved was that he said, you know, bring me anything that you write. It probably took a few more years after that before I actually did that. But he asked me to sing something because he'd heard me singing and it was some kind of something that was going to be broadcast. And so I sang it and he said, listen, anything that you have that you are writing that you want me to help you with, I will help you with it. 
But what it turned out that he meant was not that he would change anything that I wrote. He wouldn't change a thing. He would just translate it into sounds that he had access to that was way more sophisticated than anything I had access to or still have access to. So, you know, various albums we put out. I don't know if anybody ever bought them or whatever, but, you know, various things were put out and, um, and he kept them in his archives. And eventually after I was, quote, discovered, unquote, whatever, we were able to have those put on vinyl and put on, you know, discs and all of those kinds of things. Yeah. So he's, uh, he's quite something. And um, he's a friend. He and his wife, Katrina, are friends of Elizabeth and I. And we go and we stay with him. They have their own place that we can stay in. So it's like, yeah, that's how that works. I wonder if you see yourself as a part of a larger community lineage or tra- tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Musicians come in two types. They listen to nothing and listen to everything. Most musicians listen to everything. I was in the, you know, 10% that listened to no music whatsoever. I never listened to music. I just didn't. However, recently, because I am with a person who likes to listen to music, which is to say my wife, right? In the last bunch of years, I've been, you know, there's something that's happening with me and I'm, I'm opening to hearing the music of other people. And I get a ton. I mean, there, there's incredible music that I actually was aware of when I was a child or a young person back in 1970, you no, know, 61, 62. There were incredible musicians around at that time. And I, I did hear them because I was in music school and I was listening to some things at that point. So it's not like I never knew anything about the brilliant musicians that were happening in the 60s. I did know about them. I remember being in university at uh, at school, at music school, and I heard all along the watchtower. And I flipped out because I recognize genius when I hear it. It's really simple, right? However, let's talk about today. Today, there are so many brilliant young singers and musicians who are making music that just knock me out. It's knocking me out. So I'm happy to say that providing that, you know, we haven't blown the world up and we don't all drown in a tidal wave or some other horrible thing that, you know, we're working to not have that happen, that the same generation is doing that. The generation that's, you know, happening now and that our young adults are putting out music that is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And I am listening to it and thrilled about it. Like, it brings me to tears often. You're doing that out there. You just keep doing that. Oh, you hear me now? You just keep doing that. <laughs> it's good. Everyone needs some encouragement. And that's what elders are for. That's what elders are for. Elders are to encourage. You know, back when we lived in tribes and we were not into this single family where women are supposed to take care of absolutely everything and men are supposed to take care of absolutely everything is ridiculous. Who the heck can do that? 
in the days where we had lots of family members and our small communities, because we lived in small communities, would have people in it that could relate to all of our children or yin, 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 yin. We were constantly being helped, helped in one way or another by the people around us, right? That is the natural thing for humans. We got to get back to that. And I think we're trying to, but we've had a little bit more of a difficulty, especially with COVID. It's kind of kiboshed some of that direction. Yeah. But it's not going to kibosh it forever. Nope. Yeah. We will uh, again have elders who encourage young people and who can help to take the load off. They will be encouraging the youngest ones because they can take care of the youngest ones while mom and dad go out and have to take care of getting the money or getting the, you know, in the days past, going out and doing all kinds of things where you couldn't necessarily strap your baby on your back, you know. In some places they were able to, some indigenous cultures, yes, but in most cultures it was not possible, right? So yeah, that's the purpose of multi-generational stuff. I'm wondering if you could speak to improvisation as a part of your practice. I'm constantly improvising. But the improvisation that I do rarely turns out to be something that will make it into a piece that I write. Because that improvisation for me is about, I'm not really a great improviser in the first place. Because how I ever learned to play the piano is truly a mystery to me. At one point I was quite good at it, but as I've gotten older and older, I'm, I'm not. So I don't even use it in that way. I use the silicon-based life forms. <laughs> but anyway, I do like to improvise occasionally. It's less improvisation as much as it is study now. Like, um, I love Haydn, the music of Haydn. And it's the 1700s, right? Right, okay, so there's Mozart and Haydn. They were the two biggies, right? I'm not a Mozart fan, you know? I hope I'm not offending anybody, but I'm not. I'm a Haydn fan. So I will put on a piece of Haydn's, right? And sit down, and it's not improvisation, it's study. And I'll go, where is he going? What is he modulating to? And I'll try to find it on the piano. I'll try to keep up with him. Right? And it's not easy because he's a genius and he goes places that are so complex at times. You just cannot believe how complex it is. But I do my best. I try to keep up with him, you know, and it's just, I might, I might only, you know, go over and over like 10 bars or 12 bars. But that's how I'm studying at this point. Yeah. Okay. I'm hoping that it will increase my abilities. Yeah, you know, just in terms of my ability to hear things, because it's quite strange. Like I said, when I get a transmission, I hear all kinds of things. And other than that, I don't. So, yeah. Do you see listening as an integral part of your practice in that way? Yeah, it is. Listening is now an integral part of my practice. Just because I, I want to hear what's being made, right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I'm not interested in. There's a lot of stuff I'm not interested in, but there is this cream on the top of the milk 
You might not know about that, but in the old days, <laughs> milk and cream were not separate. And that cream would float to the top of the milk, right? And you'd end up scooping it and then churning it into butter and stuff. Oh, dear. How old am I? Anyway, I know about these things. I've actually seen it done. <laughs> but anyway, okay. So the cream that rises to the top, I just don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. Yeah. Do you see a relationship between the construction of the self and the creation of music? Both of these things as simultaneously informed by time, space, and the materiality of the world and matter? Well, that's a really hard one to answer because I don't think you can separate it. You know, we're creative beings. And so are most are all other animals. and. We even understand now that mushrooms are a huge part of, you know, they're somewhere between animal and plant. I know that'll creep a lot of people out, but it's the truth. When you really study what a mushroom is, it's quite amazing. We're all part of that, and I don't think you can separate it, right? I don't think so. Yeah. And what people create is in any way, shape, or form is a function of being a human and being uh, an animal, and being a mushroom. <laughs> I mean, ants create stuff, right? Honeybees create stuff, right? What do they create? It's amazing what they create, right? And they have ways to talk to each other. They talk to each other. Like, they have communication, right? And especially the queen bee. I mean, she has whole conversations with the rest of the bees, right? Yeah, typical of women. <laughs> Women are quite something. <laughs> those of you who are women already know that. And those of you who are guys who are advanced guys know that as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. The, the brain is different between women and men, right? The brain is different. Yeah. Men go, the left side and the right side. The left side and the right side. Towards the left side, we don't know what the hell's going on in the left side, but whatever. But the right, no, no, it's the right side we don't know. But the left side, we sort of do know. But meanwhile, women's brains go like back and forth, right? As opposed to males, which are very dominant in the left brain. So women are very different and very much more intuitive, folks. Your voice is obviously a very integral part of your music with undeniable, arresting, and powerful quality. I'm wondering if you can speak about your own relationship with your voice and its ability to carry messages across time and space. No, I can't speak about that because it's like different people have different things which they are able to do that with, right? And I went to university to study specifically, to study voice. Uh, but I started training it when I was uh, 15. Yeah. I had a, an incredible Russian 
Jewish opera singer who is now no longer singing, who had come to the United States. And she, uh, this is really wild, folks, but in 1957, there was in Philadelphia, which is where I was born, a high school. Kids that went there were either uh, intellectually incredibly brilliant or and they were brilliant musically or artistically. So because we were able to have an hour and a half of either music or art every single day. Now, I wasn't that brilliant. I managed to get in by the skin of my teeth to this school. However, I ended up trying out for the music. And there was two kinds of music. It was either instrumental or vocal. I ended up trying out for the instrument and instrumental music. And they said, oh, we would love you to play the trombone. We don't have enough. And it was only for females. This whole school was only for females, right? And I was born a female. So you could either do art or you could do the choir. So I tried out for the musical part of the choir for instruments. And they said, oh, we'd love you to play the trombone. And I, you know, I came home and my mother said, over my dead body, you will play the trombone. So that was the end of that, right? But I went with my very best friend and she ended up being the first harpist of the uh, Boston Symphony Orchestra. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, right. And my friends during that year, it was a year for incredible artists. And many of them ended up doing things where they were known around the world. Right. Okay. So when I tried out for the choir, there was a young woman who was in the choir and she said, oh, listen to your voice. She said, okay, I have somebody that I think would help you, that is my teacher, that I think would be great for training you. And she took me to this amazing woman who started training me when I was 15. So that by the time I got to university, my voice was already trained, enough for them to let me into the music program for voice. sound, what is hidden and what is revealed? They have discovered that that a black hole in space, okay, this is going to sound wild, okay, that a black hole in space actually makes a sound that is something like, I don't know, 20 octaves below what we can hear. There was a woman scientist, she was an international scientist, of the universe. She said, quote, sound is the basis of the universe. (laughs) Mm, Snort, snort, sorry, but I gotta tell you, women, once again, she said that. And now we have discovered that black holes actually sing. They actually sing. We just can't hear them, right? Well, as far as we know, black holes are the way in which the universe came together in the first place. At first, it was just some carbon stuff floating about or whatever it was, whatever the first molecule was. I forget what that one is. It was just kind of floating about. I don't know where that came from. That's beyond my capacity to even think about because, you know, whatever. But then things started getting organized. And when they got organized, then our first molecule 
you know, and then it started, uh, you know, doing whatever it was doing and getting together and making the universe the way we know it, as far as we know, and it was singing. <laughs> it's really funny. I love it. It makes me snort. Sorry. Harmony is hosted and produced by Julia E. Dick and Amanda Harvey, with the generous support from the Canada Council for the Arts. This episode was edited by our production assistant, Laura Dickens, with mixing and mastering by Evan Vincent, project management by Christian Scott, graphic design by Mutual Design. A huge thanks to all our contributors for their generous involvement in this project. If you'd like to support this project and what we do, please follow us on Instagram or subscribe to our Patreon.